Welcome to Menu Feed, a bi-weekly podcast from Winsight Media's two food service brands, Restaurant Business and Food Service Director. I'm Pat Kobe, Senior Editor covering Menu Food and Drink for both brands. Today I'm talking with Nikki Freihofer, Associate Director of Strategy, and Graham Humphreys, CEO, both with the Culinary Edge, a food and drink innovation company. Together, they are sharing their insights on 2021 menu trends that have staying power and what we can expect to see emerging in 2022. Be prepared to find out what appuccino is, why flexitarian eating is on the rise, how neo-nostalgia is impacting the menu, and how operators can position ghost kitchens to maximize efficiencies and profit. Listen as Nikki and Graham look back on the best trends of the past year and envision what we can look forward to in the year ahead. Welcome, Graham and Nikki. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, Thanks for having us. Thanks, Pat. Yeah, so we're going to talk about 2021 trends continuing into 2022 and maybe some of the new forms they might take on. So who would like to tackle that first? Yeah, I can discuss a little bit. I mean, you know, thinking about trends that have started this year and might continue into next year, it's unavoidable to think about how COVID spurred a lot of these new trends or shifts in the industry. You know, for example, one of the trends that we've been discussing a lot at TCE is this kind of swing of the pendulum back to guests um, customizing their orders even more so than, you know, in previous years. I think that we went through a period of curation where, Restaurant brands were really curating all of their dishes and it was easier on the operation. It was easier to tell the guest, this is what we're good at. Just get this, you know, chicken harissa bowl because we're good at making this. Don't customize it. And, you know, since we've seen such a boom again of omni-channel ordering, so many more people ordering on um, native apps or on like 3PD apps, you're seeing a lot more customization and, um, you know, one of the ways we've seen this be called is like the app, you know, the appuccino, like playing on the word cappuccino at Starbucks, which got a lot of attention for folks ordering just like insanely large and complicated drinks at Starbucks, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really fascinating because it also cues towards the consumer behavior of when you're not having to interface with a staff member at a restaurant, it's a lot easier to make all of your edits and changes to your order because the staff member's not judging you and like rolling their eyes like, oh, this person's asking me for double extra whip, to triple foam, whatever. Um, so that that's one kind of interesting trend that I'm curious to see how it evolves into 2022 um, as guests kind of figure out how to customize orders in this new world of like digital ordering, really. Yeah. And another thing that we've been seeing is you know, in, in 2020, it's no news to anybody that people started engaging with restaurants through a screen rather than on Main Street. And that can be by TikTok. That can be through a, uh, you know, uh, uh, a music artist branded partnership, or that can be uh, through DoorDash. And at the same time as that happened, uh, maybe it's no surprise we saw an explosion of expectation and choice. And people... Um, um, you know, trying more different things and expecting to have more choice, even in the same occasion, mm-hmm. uh, and ordering from different brands at the same time for the same meal for the same group. Um, mm-hmm. And this has also led to not only a change in the way that people order, but what people are eating. 
um, or we're seeing it happen at the same time. And I think a great example is the rise of um, vegan items. So we're not necessarily seeing a rise in the number of people who count themselves vegans, but we're seeing a rise in the number of people who uh, say, well, it's Tuesday and I feel like eating vegan food today. So we, we see flexitarianism, what we call flexitarianism, uh, is continuing to rise too. Yeah, definitely. I've noticed that too. But as far as customization goes with the labor crisis that we're now going through, how is that, you know, how can restaurants adapt to mm-hmm. increase customization? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's one of those things that the operator might be like clenching their teeth at or these, you know, complicated orders. Um, I think that, you know, our perspective thinking through it and, and talking to operators about it is that the majority of folks go for the baseline and they're not hyper customizing still, but to have that amount of data and understanding about your guest is actually really powerful for the operator. It might put potentially a little bit of that labor strain on when someone does put through, you know, every, every second order comes through with edits at the same time, you can take the perspective of like our guests are literally telling us what they want and you couldn't get a better way to um, gather consumer data and use that to leverage for menu innovation. So of course there's a short-term strain and, and we're seeing massive labor restrictions across the industry, but there is a way to, to spin it to say like leverage this for, um, for learnings and innovation in the future. Right. That's a really good point. As far as fast casual goes, I know you, um, the Culinary Edge deals with a lot of um, fast casual concepts and launching new ones. So they, that segment seemed to have lost a lot of breakfast and lunch business because people were working from home. So how do you see fast casual evolving in 2022? Are they going to be able to catch up again? I mean, I think so. Of course, at the, at the outset, breakfast and, and also largely lunch was pretty demolished by COVID from folks staying home. We are seeing those day parts though, begin to rise again. Like they're by no means dead in the water. And there are some concepts, you know, like first watch with which IPO would this year, which is a breakfast centric concept, which is doing amazingly and growing. Um, so it really, it really all depends on the approach. I think that this, the, the concept of fast casual and, QSR, you know, traditional fast food is just going to continue to blend into the next year, right? Because so many of the fast casuals that we know and love, like Chipotle, Sweet Green, Shake Shack, they're all getting drive-throughs now, which was like in the past a squarely QSR fast food thing to do. Now these fast casuals are like, well, this helps us with throughput, it helps drive sales. And so, you know, even a few years ago, we were saying like, what really is the difference between fast food and fast casual? And as the years have gone on and into 2022, I really think that those lines are going to blur even more. And the distinction becomes less about your experience in the, in the space or with the brand ordering and more just about the type or the quality of the food will potentially become more of the distinction. Right. And how can um, operators innovate the menu to meet the demands of today's consumers? You've already talked about that a little about, you know, customization, but are there any um, emerging cuisines or flavors that you see coming up in 2022? It's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint like 
you know, ramen's going to be huge next year. <laughs> I tend to find those kinds of projections like slightly silly, but on a more like macro scale, the pandemic ushered in like a, a huge wave again of comfort food, interest in comfort food. And on the opposite side of the spectrum, a lot of people were using um, food as a way to travel and explore when they couldn't physically get on a plane. So at the same time, you had everybody ordering pizza and they just want to be comfortable. But they're also like, well, my trip to Thailand got canceled, so I'm just going to keep ordering Thai food too. Um, so you kind of see it on both sides of the spectrum. And I think that in terms of menu innovation to continue to meet those demands, one kind of interesting, you know, sh sure thing, I guess you could say is, this concept of neo-nostalgia, which is essentially like taking that edge of comfort food, taking those familiar forms like your pizza or your sandwich or whatever that form is that your consumers are really familiar with and innovating on that with flavor. So we're seeing that approach being very successful for a number of operators across the industry is keeping one leg of the innovation familiar and comforting and approachable and then pushing out and actually innovating when it comes to flavor or like a more minute element of the dish. Right. I love that term neo-nostalgia. I haven't heard that before. Mm -hmm. I've, I've heard comfort 2.0. That's another one that people <laughs> are throwing around. <laughs> so Graham, maybe you can answer this question. Um, I know that you work with a lot of operators to develop new concepts from the ground up. So what are the essentials that every new concept must include in 2022 to be successful? Yeah, um, you know, we often talk in our industry about different trends, um, like, you know, what's plant-based, you know, where's that going? Where's sustainability going? Where we start is with the humans. We start with the people that, you know, in the hospitality industry, we call guests. Uh, you call them customers, you call them consumers, whatever you call them, it's the, the humans and understanding where the market's going, where their desires are going. Uh, you talked about breakfast and has it gone? Well, people have a desire for breakfast. They've got a desire to come out. They've got a desire to re-socialize again. They've got a desire to be out and about and you know return to pre-COVID ways. Um, so it's understanding what the drivers are, understanding what the needs are, and sometimes people aren't able to articulate what they're going to want next year or what the next big thing is going to be. So it's watching, it's listening, it's understanding. You know, our team is always out and about um, uh, looking at inspiring and, and effective examples of food service across the industry. So it's reading, reading those tea leaves and connecting those dots. And we call that, you know, a human-centered design approach. And then, you know, once we've got an insight into what we feel that people are looking for, we, we think of a journey for, for every concept, whether it's QSR, whether it's fast casual, whether it's fast fine, we think about something called what we call a customer journey. Uh, and there are five steps to it. It's, you know, deciding where you want to eat and what you want to eat. And you might be doing that on the main street. You might be doing that on uh, DoorDash or a Grubhub. The, the second step is you, you enter. And whether you're entering an app or whether you're actually entering a restaurant, it is what is the message that is being sent to you? People eat with their, they, well, sure, they, you, know, you, 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 you eat and you taste with your sense of taste and smell, but you also eat with your eyes. You, you taste what you read, you taste what you understand, and you taste what you see. So there's entering and then there's ordering and making sure that ordering experience is delightful. 
Um, I think there's a lot which is talked about. People no longer want to have, you know, they no longer want to deal with cards or debit cards or credit cards or that kind of thing when they're ordering. They're expected to be contactless, but there can also be joy in the ordering system. And those moments of joy translate to business success for many. And then there's, you know, the dining experience, paying attention to that. And then the leaving experience, which is how are you going to create a memory, uh, which is going to encourage people to come back and return to your business. So deciding, entering, ordering, dining, and leaving, those are the essentials that we really like to focus on for every single concept, mm-hmm. what people are thinking, feeling, and doing. Great. And as far as um, design goes or prototypes, are there certain um, guidelines that a new concept should follow? I know a lot of restaurants are putting in, um, you know, smaller kitchens or making a smaller footprint and focusing more on off-premise. But, you know, I'm not sure what you see ahead for 2022. Well, smaller is beautiful for sure. (laughs) I think that with our own concept, Starbird, we moved from, you know, 2,500 square foot locations to between like 1,500 and 2,000 square foot locations that we're actually looking at. I think that, you know, it's different for uh, every kind of concept. Are you looking for an experiential concept because we see growth there? Or are you looking for something which is super streamlined? But when it comes to real estate, you know, for our own concept, Starbird, it's definitely less is more. And, you know, we're seeing that for many of our other client partners as well. Mm-hmm. And how about virtual concepts or ghost kitchens? I know that a lot of um, chains started those this year. Do you think those will continue? And do you think it's right for every brand? I mean, it, it's probably not right for every brand, um, but I think they'll certainly continue. I mean, not only because they just have such Um, significant sales potential for those who do it right. But also, frankly, they just have a lot of hype and big money interested in keeping them going and tech is getting involved. And it is a, it is an avenue of restaurant innovation that has people outside of the restaurant industry interested. So it will continue to grow. Um, What I think is interesting is, and I don't necessarily have an answer to this, but I'll continue to observe it is at the beginning of the hype around ghost kitchens and virtual brands, you saw a lot of brands popping up out of nowhere that were like virtual only. They only exist on the app. You can't go into the store at all. Mm -hmm. And those I'm sure will continue to exist, but I am curious if the benefit of those ghost remote kitchens is potentially more useful for established brands that have brick and mortar locations and that are going to then outsource all of their off-premise operations to a ghost kitchen. So you're seeing that with brands such as Sweetgreen, et cetera, who are saying we ha- well, they have stores, obviously, and whenever they're getting a digital like delivery order, that's referred to their, their ghost remote unit. Um, and I think that is a really compelling model for restaurants in the future. So you can really separate between your digital orders coming from one kitchen and your in-store orders being actually in store. Um, because otherwise you're seeing a lot of what like Chipotle and other brands are doing, which is building double lines so that they can have a full line dedicated to on-premise and a full line dedicated to off-premise. Um, so I think ghost kitchens will continue to be really, really meaningful in that regard. And also probably we'll continue to see this experimentation with virtual only brands that pop up out of nowhere. 
I, I, I'd, I'd lean into, oh, Pat, no, you go. I didn't mean to cut no, you no, off. Go ahead, Graham. That's fine. I think that, you know, when we talk about, you know, in the industry, when we talk about ghost kitchens and virtual brands, we often lump them together. And uh, I think that building on what Nikki said, they're actually two different things. You know, a ghost kitchen can really be supporting a non-virtual brand like Sweetgreen and giving it that capacity for, you know, off-premise that people expect. I mean, you can be a super experiential brand like Dave & Buster's, right? Or, or Top Golf, and people are going to expect you to deliver. It's just going to now be in an expectation that people are going to expect to get that at their homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people will order it if the food is good. Um, a virtual brand, you know, we see as something which is intrinsically different. It's something which doesn't have a brick and mortar or street side presence. And it's a product that, you know, you understand primarily through your screen, like, um, you know, a restaurant becomes an app. Mm-hmm. And uh, we definitely see a future for virtual concepts um, in the same way that um, a lot of products and services in our lives that, you know, we used to go to the post office. Some of us, if I'm having a really bad day, I might have to go to the post office again. But really, I'm now engaging with that service as an app. And in the same way, I think there's going to be a lot of very exciting, interesting, engaging virtual food service brands that are going to be delivered digitally uh, and no less experiential for that. It's, it's the start of a major change in our industry. Do you think we'll see um, menu items other than burgers, chicken wings, chicken sandwiches? Those seem to be the biggest in the virtual brand. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think this is really the kind of science and art of creating food, which can sit for 30 minutes um, and still be delicious after that. I think what we were really surprised with, pleasantly surprised, um, you know, we operate Starbird, um, you know, our super premium fast food concept. But what we were really surprised to see is that people are very happy to uh, eat fries after they're cold after 30 minutes. <laughs> now, I don't know how long people are going to continue to tolerate that. And I think that the, the quality of holding is going to increase and people's expectations are also going to increase. But uh, I think one of the new skills now is going to be what is the packaging what are the uh, you know preparation methods that uh, and what are the menu items that are going to hold really really well? I think that's going to be a key competitive advantage uh, in the next couple of years. Well, I'm excited to see things other than chicken wings, chicken sandwiches, and burgers come out of the virtual world. That's for sure. You forgot pizza. Pizza's there in as well. <laughs> but yeah. I. I, I saw I interviewed one um, operator who was doing baked goods because they saw like a real void in virtual baked goods uh, concepts. So I thought that was interesting because those are really easy to package and deliver. Mm-hmm. So talking about delivery, um, how can restaurants elevate their delivery and take out menus to provide an experience that's more close to dining in? Because I know a lot of customers are looking for more experiential types of dining, you know, experiences now, um, now that they can get out again. But they still do crave delivery and takeout. So how can they make that experience a better one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this was this was a huge question that, you know, we were getting very often when everyone was pivoting to delivery and you know everyone wanted to make sure that their experience was still enjoyable for guests. I think that the path of least resistance or maybe just like the lowest hanging fruit is to have thoughtful, meaningful 
packaging and like physical touch points with the food. So making sure that it, which seems like a no brainer, but people struggle with it. The food fits well, it stays warm or it stays cold. If that's the intent, it comes with napkins and utensils. And there's kind of this like unboxing experience and talking about this like meaningful unboxing so that you have that effect of like, you know, you're opening your new iPhone with Apple packaging, they design it. So there's like that suspense and the suction with the box. And um, I think that restaurants do have a little bit of ways to go in terms of making that unboxing experience a little bit more meaningful, but some brands have been kind of doubling down on that and, um, and, and trying to make it work. Um, the downside, you know, which is perhaps like a personal opinion of mine is that there's just like a, a horrible amount of waste generated from spending too much effort and time on your, on your packaging um, as opposed to delivering delicious food that shows up, you know, warm or cold or whatever it should. Um, because when you are getting proprietary packaging for every single item and it's triple thick walls and it's not recyclable, um, it's, it's generating a lot of waste that um, we, we need to find a better solution for in the industry. Definitely. What kind of packaging does Starbird use uh, for their takeout? Starboard uses compostable, um, like sugarcane based pulp bowls and whatnot, I believe. I think it's, I think it's sugarcane based. So a lot of our items are compostable. Some, you know, the rest like plastic lids, et cetera, cups are, um, recyclable, but you know, it's still, it's still a huge anomaly in the industry to use compostable packaging and, you know, sometimes even recyclable, so really the solution is like the least amount of packaging you can, because regardless, you know, it might not go where it, where it should go. Definitely. Yeah. And what about kids menus? I've, you know, done a couple of stories lately showing how certain chains are elevating kids menus to make them healthier. I know we've been talking about this for many, many years, but it actually seems to be happening now. Um, even the, you know, National Restaurant Association came out with, new guidelines for kids eat well. Do you see anything happening in the kids' arena? Not enough. Um, yeah. you know, speaking, really. <laughs> um, speaking as a working parent, I think that a lot more can and should be done. Um, I think that a lot of restaurants are missing a big opportunity for uh, more frequency and certainly like a larger check by providing something for kids that is you know, I, I appreciate the lift that's been made. We were starting from a very low base, but, um, you know, kids are people too, and they get even more excited about food than adults do. So uh, I think by treating kids not as an add-on or not as a, a veto vote, but actually as more of an opportunity to draw adults to the restaurant, um, I, I, think, I think some brands, I think there's headroom for a lot of brands here to create some advantage mm -hmm. by, re by, by reframing uh, kids as an opportunity. Right. Do your kids, are they a little more adventurous than the average kid because you're in the industry? <laughs> you know, I would love to say yes. Um, they, they, I, I will say that they, they love spicy food, which for three, uh, three girls under 10 years old, isn't traditional around these parts. Yeah. So I'm proud of that as a, as, as a, as a British guy, uh, we like a chicken tikka masala in this family. Classic. So are there any trends that you would love to see go away in 2022 and why, you know, 
there is, I have my personal favorites <laughs> that I would like to see go away, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say. I don't know what yours are. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's some, I mean, for me, you, you had referenced um, just like the oversaturation of wings, pizza, burgers, chicken sandwiches. I think that it's, it's a logical move because it's a crowd pleaser and, you know, there's millions of folks who eat that type of food on a daily basis. I think it is a little bit of a lazy move, depending on who you are to, uh, to use those specific platforms as your concept. So I'd like to see a little bit more uh, creativity in that space, specifically, you know, in the virtual or ghost kitchen world. Um, and just like the bandwagoning, um, the, the bandwagoning trend is something that makes sense. I get why it occurs and, you know, sometimes very strategic, but can, can get slightly boring. Definitely. And there are concepts that don't, that didn't even menu chicken that all of a sudden got into chicken wings. Which, you know, to me just seems like a lot, it would be difficult to execute. I know they're doing it in virtual, mm -hmm. but it just mm -hmm. seems like a whole different um, skew to bring in. And with supply chain problems happening now, it, you know, that makes it complicated. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think another one that's interesting for me is, um, which I think is perhaps slightly controversial, <laughs> but I think that there over the past several years, there's been this huge push of this like back to basics type of mentality within a lot of restaurants. It's like, let's just do our one basic thing really well. And maybe, you know, at the risk of sounding like slightly crass, I'm like, that's the least common denominator. Like if you're a pizza brand, you should absolutely do a cheese pizza well. That, that should be a no-brainer. So I feel like there is this kind of like back to basis position when it comes to the menu offering and particularly when it comes to visual identity. We haven't talked a lot about like brand, but this like super minimalist, super basic visual identity, I'm finding to be becoming a little bit passe and, and outdated. And the challenge is giving those basic elements any kind of like emotional impact or memorability. Like if everyone has a super, super basic um, low, like just all caps logo that's in a sans serif font and just like a line drawing, you know, icon, all the brands start to look the same. So I'd like to see a little bit more like not necessarily maximalism, but um, less bandwagoning in terms of the, the visual identity being super basic as well. Yeah, more differentiations. Yeah. Well, one of the things I would like to see go away is everyone's reliance on commercially made plant-based burgers. You know, I'd like to see more innovation in the plant forward menu, mm -hmm. menu innovation. <laughs> so um, do you see anything happening for there? More from scratch items, more reliance on natural plants? You know, I think that, that we have a lot of concepts locally that we eat at that have plant forward burgers that are not commercially made, you know, uh, not naming any brand names, yeah. but uh, you know, none of the ones that everybody, you know, talks about and that they're made in house. I think it's challenging. I think, I think there's a way to go to, to create plant forward burgers that have, you know, the indulgent and satiating feel of like a meat burger. Uh, and I think it's a hard challenge. I do think that uh, I don't know if this is going to, um, come to fruition this year, or it's going to be a next year thing. But I think a lot of the energy that has been directed towards plant-based, uh, some of that is 
I think we're going to see more energy in cultured meats. That is, you know, proteins and meat cells and steaks and burgers that are actually grown, as it were, outside an animal. Um, so it's 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 cultured meat. It's real meat, but it is not uh, grown, you know, inside an animal. I think that we're going to see more energy there in the next twelve to eighteen months. Well, that's good news. So- yeah, I mean, it, it has the same. Um, you know, it, it has some very similar positive environmental impacts mm-hmm. um, to eating plant-based. Uh, as we move into 2022, what are you most looking forward to both personally and professionally? You know, I really enjoyed, Pat, your, um, uh, you know, the podcast. I don't know if it was the last one or one before, but uh, it was 2022, the year of the climb. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, as operators in our community, we all had one heck of a 2020. And I think that with the, the operational challenges that we see right now, you know, with our client partners, um, we're working with them with our own concept, Starbird. We also have to work very hard um, to get labor these days, uh, you know, to get you know, people and to keep people. But net net, I think that uh, I like the way that I like this notion of the year of the climb because I see on the other side of this hill that we're climbing, I see a better industry. Right. How about you, Nikki? Yeah, I mean, beyond, you know, fingers crossed, hopefully uh, at the end of 2022, just somehow magically fully being done with with the pandemic and um, very freely eating and drinking and reveling in groups and spaces would be a, a definite thing to look forward to. But I agree with what Graham and it sounds like you were saying too, which is that a blessing and a curse. A lot of the, the pandemic has accelerated a lot of changes that have been a long time coming in the industry, not the least of which is, you know, fighting for um, a fair living wage. And I think that hopefully, although we're in the thick of a, a painful stretch with it, we'll come out the other side with a stronger industry that's more equitable um, and just stronger in general. Thanks so much for taking us into the future, Nikki and Graham. Please join us for more episodes of Menu Feed as we continue to explore food, drink, and menu trends. Past episodes can be downloaded on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. (music) 